Warning, the following podcast contains mouth-watering, delicious descriptions of food. Consuming while on an empty stomach is not recommended. Listener's discretion is advised. Hi, my name's Kenji, I use they-them pronouns, and I've been actively part of SPAC for a little over a year. In my free time, I like solving Rubik's Cubes and debating with Christina on the best boa spot in Seattle. Thanks for listening to SPAC Snack. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to SPAC Snack, the Seattle Progressive Asian American Christian podcast, where we talk about what we're eating and what's eating us. My name is Christina, and I use she, her pronouns. Here in Seattle, we are still under shelter in place, and so we haven't been able to meet in person to record a podcast episode together, which for us really is where the magic happens, where we get to be silly, eat together, and gather at the table, and make you feel like you're at the table with us too. But inspired by how so many of us have managed to stay in touch with our communities, our friends, and reach out to people maybe that we've lost touch with, through video calls, Animal Crossing, or other forms of communication during this time of lockdown, we decided to reach out to members of our community in SPAC that we haven't heard on this podcast yet. So Pauline called Kenji Fujinaka, who goes by they, them pronouns. I called Katya Nemek, who goes by she, her pronouns, to introduce them and also find out what's eating them and what they're eating. Uh, hi, this is Pauline. I'm one of the co-hosts of SPAC Snack. Um, I've been using whatever pronouns float your boat and very happy to have Kenji here today. And by here, I mean we are speaking over Zoom. <laughs> hi, Kenji. Please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Kenji. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a second year undergrad in human-centered design and engineering, and gender, women, and sexuality studies at UW, which is one of those programs. It's the same program that Christina's in, if you've been paying attention. Um, I wished you could be my TA someday, but alas, the conflict of interest. (laughs) Really? You can't, like, she literally can't be your TA. I think we would have to, like, make sure the professor knows or something and like switch me to a different TA. Like if the class is like more than one or something, but she's never TA'd a class I've been in. And like, I feel like her interests and my interests in the field, like don't exactly align. So mm. it's probably not super likely. Oh, okay. The first person to comment correctly, exactly what the spelling of Kenji's double majors are gets a prize. <laughs> If you can spell it all out, you win. Yeah, it takes up two lines on my resume. Like, ooh, wow. I mean, you always need to pad your resume anyway. That's Um, true. So how long have you been in SPAC? I looked up on Facebook how long I've been in SPAC. And apparently I joined SPAC in late 2017. But then I joined Big Pack in early 2018 which means I did not know Big Pack was a thing. Oh, we shouldn't have let you in. Because <laughs> I think one of the rules of being in SPAC is that you have to be a member of PAC. 
Oh, that's funny. Well, alas, yeah. I guess I just like didn't know that there was like a national thing. I thought it was like a Seattle thing. Mm-hmm. No, we used to. Um, the group used to be called like Seattle Progressive Asian American Christians. I'm always terrified. I'm gonna like mess up a part of that, even though I've said <laughs> it so many times. Because we would get random. Like, when I was a mod and I would be answering, like, membership requests, we would just get random people who were, like, just searching, like, Christian in Seattle. Like, you know, just, they weren't Asian, or they weren't American, or they, or they weren't from Seattle. And so we just, I think we just changed the name to SPAC to, because, like, no one's going to try to join it unless they already know what PAC is. That's true. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I don't think PAC started that long before you joined, because our anniversary... Like, our official start date is July 2017. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you've been there since the beginning, basically. That's wild. (laughs) It's been a long time. (laughs) Yeah, it has. You were, like, four years old in 2017. Hey, hey, hey. I was 17. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was a senior in high school, okay? (laughs) Oh, man, I always forget that, like, high schoolers could be part of PAC. Like, totally, obviously, that's true, but I'm always just, like, everyone in here isn't old as fuck? Like, what? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Confused. Like, when I joined, I was, like, everybody's old. Like, yeah. I'm, like I'm one of the youngest people here. <laughs> <laughs> well, over that time, what has SPAC come to mean to you? Um, I think at the beginning, I was, like, looking for... Asian, Christian, queer-affirming folks who, like, cared about broader social issues, which I guess was, like, something I was kind of missing when I was in high school. I was, like, really tired of vetting people on their beliefs, like, doing the whole, like, feel-out conversations before, like, allowing myself to, like, be open with them about, like, gender, sexuality kinds of things. But since, I guess, like... I don't know. Since I started going to in-person SPAC things, I think it was nice to, like, join a community of people who, like, already had that, like, foundation. And so I didn't have to vet anyone or, like, oh, they're, like, I can't tell if this person's queerphobic or not, for example. And so I guess it was just nice, like, having other Asian Christians who, like, had no previous context about, like, who I was or, like, yeah, things like that. Like, I've been going to the same church for the last 20 years, so everyone in that, in my Christian community at that time, like, knew everything about me, pretty much. It is cool. I think it's personally cool that you have a faith community that, like, makes effort to support you because um, I feel like a lot of people in PAC have come from like conservative Christian backgrounds or immigrant churches that they would not be able to return to, I guess, because that kind of effort hasn't been made. And But I I totally understand the feeling of just kind of breathing and like resting in a space that essentially has already like vetted itself. And I would say that like, for me, PAC is a space that vets itself kind of all the time. And not just in the interest of being, like, social justice warriors who are on, like, the right side of history. Like, not just for vanity's sake, but I think people are actually interested in 
figuring shit out and like working through it and that work the active work create like actively creates a space where you don't have to give people that weird side eye and just be like now I'm spiraling about this like one thing you said in this whole conversation even though you seem like a super nice person (laughs) yeah for sure like you like latch on to that one like offhanded thing and you're like (sighs) it's so awkward and then you spend all your time like asking people who know this person and you're like I just need you to tell me if they're and they're like what are you talking about and you're like you didn't notice and then and then you feel like you're kind of like going crazy and totally yeah for sure totally I really enjoyed the pride barbecue that we had last year and honestly kind of little sad that we can't have that again this year tragic I was not there oh no I can't remember like when I started going to like in-person SPAC events I met you at Thanksgiving last year right I think my first SPAC like in-person gathering was like um it was in Bellevue like oh yeah we like want to go watch the farewell or something but then we didn't and we just got shared instead well you didn't I thought I thought you guys did go watch the movie did something mm, happen no <laughs> no we all just we went to share tea and then I think Thomas and Jenny came and they were like we're hungry and so then we went down the street and got like dumped wings or something I mean that sounds super fun but I'm kind of like lol that you didn't end up watching the farewell <laughs> I mean, I had already watched it at that point, I think. So I wasn't about to go watch it again. <laughs> I know, you can only be sad about your parents enough times in public. Yeah. Time to cry. Well, what is it like being quarantined with your mom? Um, it's a time, you know, like living at home. Uh, my mom is a dentist and she's actually not around or during the day at least she usually like goes to her office and like I don't know what she does there actually she just claims she has stuff to do outside <laughs> or, like by herself nice. <laughs> at work <laughs> so it's kind of nice because then I get the school day to myself and like I have to like self-regulate and do all my school work I hate online classes mm. I hate online classes I can't deal with them but it's fine it's fine what has been like the roughest part of like distance learning um I think just not being able to discuss with people in person especially this quarter like as an engineering student but now my program is not really hard math hard science focused so um now I'm taking a lot of like project-based classes where working with other people is kind of the whole point and doing group projects over like zoom and slack chatting like have you done this yet or like it just doesn't compare to working in person and coordinating is so much harder yeah group projects are like a nightmare <laughs> and made even more difficult by all the technology that like enables enables this kind of learning but i feel like it's also kind of a hindrance too and like people are still busy so like scheduling things take some time yeah for sure like I think I'm lucky that the only thing I'm doing right now is school um I don't really have that much else to do besides that which is nice in that sense but self-regulation is very difficult procrastination is everything yeah I like can barely get myself to do anything ever 
I've been making bread for like two days, so there's that, but I had to like move it to the fridge this morning and it took me like four hours to actually do it. You know, it happens. <laughs> At least with sourdough, it's like the more you procrastinate, the better it tastes. I don't that know. That is a perk. <laughs> I have no idea how it's going to turn out. I feel like the first time I tried to make that boba guys like strawberry matcha latte was just like a hilarious fail i just i mean but it tasted good right it was fucking delicious but i it was so ugly (laughs) who cares about the aesthetics your stomach doesn't know the difference (laughs) i care (laughs) (laughs) i did make a very pretty one the next day though so i was very pleased i know i saw on your story yeah kind of knocked the glow up Because I, like, all of my brain energy was, like, geared towards, like, making a streak. Because <laughs> I, like, can't focus on anything else in my life right now. It's just, like, okay, so I made this drink twice, and I'm making bread, and I think I'm going to make, like, handmade noodles for jajangmyeon maybe tomorrow. So I just, like, think about these, like, stupidly elaborate projects that I would never do if I didn't have the unemployment time to do it yeah i mean i've been procrastinating baking so i definitely feel that yeah oh i did that all the time in college i would make like a really elaborate meal so like stage one was like procrastinate cooking and then stage two was like oh no i need to take four hours to make this pie and then after the four hours you're like oh fuck this homework this homework still due (laughs) i hate it yeah it's actually awful like i made bread yesterday and i was like oh i have to like watch it and make sure it's not burning and stuff and then like the whole hour went by or whatever and then i sat down and i was like yep i still have work to do (laughs) (laughs) terrible how that happens uh the worst yeah, I definitely don't have a Dutch oven, so baking this bread is going to be hilarious. I had to Google if my, like, Ikea stock pot could go in the oven, and I was like, oh, I've already failed. It's fine. Yeah, where it's going to, like, melt at 500 degrees. Yeah, I mean, the Ikea website said I could put it in the, it said oven safe. It didn't say it won't melt if you bake it up. Uh... <laughs> like you can put it in the oven does the oven have to be on no <laughs> right you can just exactly put it in there <laughs> mm-hmm. by that definition anything is oven safe that's true unless it physically can't fit in the oven yes that's true like a person no, uh, that's you could fit you could definitely fit a person in an oven really i always thought like the hansel and gretel thing was like it's like oh this makes sense they're children okay is there anything you're looking forward to eating after quarantine is over? Honestly, no. I think most of the places I could frequent or like have cravings for like have takeout right now, which is fine. I just want to eat with other people in person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like <clears throat> me and my roommate, before this all happened, we're doing um, monthly Korean fire noodle <laughs> challenges oh once a month <laughs> together. Like we like plan them out. Yeah. We did that once a month and raised our cholesterol levels together. And gave your digestive systems a month to recover between. Oh, it was awful. Oh, there was one time where we tried the two times spicy and the next morning we were both like vying for our single shared bathroom. 
<laughs> the worst. That's, that's incredible. You gotta plan that shit out in advance. Get a second toilet. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I I've had the one time spicy and the two times spicy. I had to eat the one time spicy with an entire roll of kimbap. Like, you know, you just like eat rice when things are spicy. Mm-hmm. So right. I, and it took me like 45 minutes to finish it. And then the second time I was eating it with like four other people who like didn't know what it was. Um, <sighs> two of them were Asian. I don't know if they were Korean though. So maybe that's why they didn't know. But we all took like three bites each and everyone was like crying. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> we brought it on like a, we took a trip to Port Angeles and then we like made a single bowl and it took like five people, like just everyone's crying. It was, it was great. Uh, what the heck? I mean, like good I guess. Time. I was like, isn't that why you have your parties? It's like shared trauma. <laughs> I guess. Um... Yeah, we've, like, branched out into the, like, other flavors. There's, like, a carbonara flavor and, like, yeah, yeah. I went to the store the other day and there's, like, a tteokbokki flavor. Oh, that would be so good. But, like, also if you just straight up also made tteokbokki and then just, like, mixed it together so it's not just the flavor but, like, the actual rice cakes. Yeah. Oh, my God. You might need to do that. I want to do that now. You should do it and then make a mukbang and time yourself to see how long it takes for you to eat it. I mean, not that long. I eat really fast. That's glorious. I also eat extremely fast. Yeah, thank you so much for joining and thank you for being on the podcast and representing a small part of the SPAC community. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Bye. See ya. SPAC Snack is brought to you by Self-Compassion. This pandemic has been incredibly challenging and traumatic for so many of us. More so than ever, we need to practice self-compassion as we weather the lows and the highs that come our way. Feeling super productive and learning new skills like baking sourdough bread? That's okay. Feeling super fatigued and anxious and you just want to lie down and watch TV? That's okay too. Self-compassion. Because shit is hard and you're worth it. I'm really happy that I get a chance to talk to you, Kasia. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having Welcome me, Christina. To- Why don't we start off with um, sharing a little bit more about you? My name is Katya Namek. I am currently the Associate for Children, Youth, and Family Ministries at Emmanuel Episcopal Church on Mercer Island. And I came to know PAC and SPAC because I was just getting so fed up for being one of the few people of color in my workspace and just dealing with so many microaggressions and just de- and like educating so many people. I was just so burnt out and I was like, I need a community. So I literally just Googled progressive Asian Christians. <laughs> and that's how I found pack um and it's just been my lifeboat it's become such a space for me to relax and there's so many things i'm working through with my identity and it's just such a nice place to come to where uh like i don't even have all my thoughts or feelings formulated yet but other people are in the same place and like are ahead of me and being able to articulate that and that's just been so healing and a place where i can be my full self and something that i struggle with at work and even on my social media is that I'm such a, I've, all, I've always found myself in places that are like 
super mixed in terms of conservative slash liberal progressive. And I have to be really careful with what I say because my I've seen like just like all out wars on my Facebook pages or just like even in as, as a youth minister, I struggle with my youth group sometimes because you have some really progressive and some really conservative kids. And as a youth minister, you have to be as neutral as you can. But sometimes it's like, what do you do if you don't agree with someone? It's a really difficult place to navigate. And there's some like, and there's some risk and I've definitely <laughs> have pushed the boundaries a lot, but it's nice to be in a place where you don't have to worry and watch what you mm -hmm. say and push the boundaries. And I found SPAC through PAC. And I think the first time I got involved was, I think it was at Aya's house, there was a discussion or maybe, I forget which was, what was the first thing that I went to. I remember being super awkward at, um, there because like, and that's another thing too, part of my Asian identity is like, I'm Filipino. But I grew up in Japan and I felt a lot of discrimination from East Asians for being Filipino. Mm. And so like it made me super nervous um, because it's like, are people even aware of this dynamic? That's another, another issue too within like Asian communities. It's like, oh yeah, we're Asian, but we're going to talk about ourselves as a minority, but never as like oppressors or complicit within white supremacist yes. structure. Yeah. And so but it's just so amazing to have that, to have all the different complex, nuanced parts of my personality explore. Like I, for me, I look for PAC as a place just to initially as a place to feel safe, but it's really been a place where I've grown so much as well. Yeah, so I for sure. Love it. <laughs> Super thankful. Yeah. It's, it's like the point you raise is so important. It's like whenever we critique racism, we only think of it in one dimension. You know, mm -hmm. we only think about it as like white against black or like, or like white against Asians. And you don't see like the intra-group dynamics that are also highly racist um, and also very oppressive. And so like when we don't have nuance to it, when we think of only one-directional, one-dimensional forms of racism, that's what you get. And I think specifically a lot of South Asian, Southeast Asians get left out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I, and there's this other part too of just like, I didn't grow up here, so like it, the, the whole concept of Asian is still so hard for me to wrap my mind around. Mm. Because like, yeah, I grew up in Japan and like, people of East Asian descent, like Japanese people, Chinese people, or Korean people would never want to be associated with each other, but underneath the same umbrella. So I just yeah. be like, wait, what are you talking about? Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. It's just like, it's so weird because like in Japan, just like even with the colonial history of Japan, and then to come here, where the Japanese people aren't the oppressors, but are part of the oppressed group, um, that just shifts dynamic. It's so it's so interesting and it's so complex. Yes. Um, and then I just I, there's part of me that really just dislikes the term Asian because it just reduces and simplifies. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just not not only like complex cultures, but just the history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't, I don't know. I don't really have all the words for it right now, but yeah. that's something I still struggle with is this, mm -hmm. with this Asian identity because I, part of me doesn't want to accept it because I'm like, I don't want to reduce the diversity of the Asian continent. And then there's also like the discrimination I encounter is not so much because people think I'm 
East Asian, but I, what I, because of the way I look, people assume I'm Latina, people assume I'm Middle Eastern. And so my experience of discrimination in the United States more closely resembles that of people who are Latin American or Middle Eastern because of the way I look. But at the same time, there's part of me that is so shaped by this Asian culture and history and traditions that I don't want to identify with that. Mm -hmm. It's weird. I don't know. I think other people who are racially ambiguous probably feel the same way of like, how do you identify, like, how do you identify with one thing mm -hmm. when everyone else is constantly telling you this is what you're supposed to be? Yeah. And like when you embody all these multitudes that like a visual marker does not tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I've always struggled with, like learning about um, intersectionality here in the U.S. and I moved over from East Asia myself, um, is that the matrices change. Like mm -hmm. each of these different emphases and different like ways that intersectionality forms itself is different in different locations. Mm -hmm. It's super contextual. So when you have had, when you've experienced that and how these identities are taken, perceived differently in different settings, and you hold all of these experiences together, it doesn't make sense when you talk to people who only have like a certain understanding of intersectionality. Yes. It's been very difficult, I think, personally in the U.S. when people talk about things in really blanket terms, like this is the way the world is. And it's like, no, I've seen the world operate differently. And mm -hmm. yeah, this is not the whole picture. No. And it's like, well, there's obviously like different in like other countries versus the United States, but like even within the United States, there's such a diversity, mm -hmm. like moving from California to Georgia to Virginia, back to now to Washington, those are the places I live in the United States. It's like realizing each, each region views race differently and each ethnic group views other people differently. And so I remember talking to one of my black friends in Richmond saying, Every time I move to a new place, like the first year is so exhausting because I have to figure out how I present to different people. Mm. And it, it was really shocking in Georgia. People would be like, oh, you're white. And I was like, that has never happened to me before. <laughs> <laughs> I've like never got that before. Um, but I, I told them, I was like, I, I, this is what I heard from my black friends. But my white friends are really clear to point out that I was not mm. white. Oh, well, not, not intentionally, it just comes out. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, it was just so shocking. Like, why do they have that perception? And I've talked to um, a Korean-American friend who's done a lot of diversity trainings for the Episcopal Church specifically. And she talks about how whenever she goes to like South, especially Deep South, people tell her that she's a white woman, but she's Korean-American. <laughs> like both her parents are Korean. Um, and she's like, it's just such a shock to be, to come across this like black, white binary. Yeah. And I don't know. It, sorry. I'm just like going all over the place. It's just, it's no, so no, it, like, it's, yeah, I think you're saying incredibly important things about like, I think one of the things that, um, so my partner is mixed mm -hmm. race um, and mm -hmm. racially ambiguous, like outwardly. And one of the things that he has expressed about like PAX spaces is that, you know, how much is racial ambiguity and mixed raceness like being represented like when you look a certain way are you welcome at SPAC or PAC you know and these are hard questions but important for us to consider yeah yeah, and, uh, yeah I've met your partner I remember I think I remember the first time I saw him walk into that room I felt relief <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. 
<laughs> um, it is it is because I think there's for so long people who are South Asian and Southeast Asian have been inclus in excluded from the Asian. I, I told you my dog would be really excited to see <laughs> me. Hi. <laughs> Hi, would you like to be interviewed? What's your dog's name? Tchaikovsky. Oh, Tchaikovsky. I love that. <laughs> um, um, because those of you are, who are listening right now can't yeah. see, um, Tchaikovsky <laughs> is a large 60 pound mm -hmm. uh, French poodle. Standard poodle, but French poodle, yeah. Standard poodle, okay. Yeah. Uh, for me, all poodles are French. That's um, okay. <laughs> Who's very loving. Uh huh. Yeah. He was away at uh, daycare and I was just come home. And so he's like, I need to go say hi to mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were just talking about how well, uh, people of Southeast Asian and South Asian mm -hmm. descent have been excluded from umbrella term Asian. I feel like those cultures are so different, but at the same time, there's so much similarity. Yeah. And I think it makes sense to look at it in terms of history and access and privilege. And obviously there's definitely a wide variety of people on the economic scale within the Asian community. But I, what I like to, what it looks, what's interesting to me is to just look in terms of our immigration history and how we are treated by the United States legal system. Mm. And that's, uh, that to me makes a lot more sense for this, the term Asian, um, because yeah, I don't, I don't, there's just, it's, these are such like deep thoughts. I've not really been thinking about them today, so I can't really articulate them as well, but. No, that's totally fair. Yeah. I, I would actually love to um, hear you give like a webinar or like a, <laughs> for you to write something about those, because that's a really interesting perspective I haven't come across yet. Oh, okay. I yeah. might, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I guess it's probably interesting just like to throw it out there to hear from other South Asians and Southeast Asians of like, what, how do they even feel about the term Asian? Why do they ascribe to it? Why not? Mm. Um, and for me, I just had, I, I think I was pushed away from it because of encounters I've had with people of East Asian descent telling me I'm not Asian enough. That's one part. But then there's also this part of me that gets really angry. And this is because I grew up in Japan. I speak Japanese fluently. Um, <laughs> and so like, well, I was actually born in Asia, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and that 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 becomes another part of the problem too of like people who were born overseas like looking down on people who weren't born there as less Asian mm. and so that's like coming for me having to come to my own reflections with that and it's something that me and my youngest sister have a lot of conversations about where for us because we're so proud of our Filipino heritage mm -hmm. it's hard for us it's so painful for us to encounter people who are embarrassed by their Filipino heritage right and like don't, I've been bullied for being Filipino and I've had those experiences but not to the same extent so I've come I have a lot more understanding now after more years of listening but initially it was really hard to have that and just ugh, and there's just and there's also part of it being being mixed with white and how mm -hmm. whiteness is so celebrated in Filipino culture mm -hmm. that from a young age I've been super aware of white privilege, especially in terms of looks and having white features. Like that's, I've, that's never been something that has had to been explained to me. Like I've experienced it and understood it from a very early age. And I think for me, my sadness was like, I didn't want this privilege. I didn't want to be treated separately because of this. I've always wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to look less white and more Filipino, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because 
like it's kind of like reverse of some people's experiences here yeah. growing up here so that's how I've like retroactively been able to um empathize and identify and understand which is interesting that it's like it's kind of like mirror experiences but like in the reverse mm -hmm. yeah but that's a really powerful journey because I think it's really hard to inhabit and uh, inhabit like these multiple identities and feel like there's a part of yourself that you don't want mm -hmm. um and how do you reconcile with that or how do you work through that yeah. Um, yeah and for me it's like it's just been so helpful to actually know about colonialism mm -hmm. and to like actually learn about that and reject some of these things so like i've like something that i've learned in the last year is this understanding like this obsession with um, maria clara mm -hmm. so i think it's jose Rosal. i'm sorry mm -hmm. filipinos but he's a national <laughs> hero <laughs> Oh, um, we'll write like a content warning, like potentially <laughs> offensive to Filipino people. <laughs> oh, he is like a national hero. Um, he was killed by firing squad for affirming that Filipinos should be independent and should be colonized and was like all about Filipino independence and celebrating Filipino culture. Um, he was killed, obviously, because he was a rebel, uh, but he had a childhood sweetheart who was uh, a mestiza. She was half Filipino, half white. She's, mm -hmm. I think, uh, the, the daughter of a priest, which is horrible. <laughs> and she was really submissive and demure um, and very religious. And this has become like part of the Filipino psyche as this idealized Filipino woman. And I've been, that's been put on me and I am super religious. I am, um, mestiza and not only am I mestiza, I am Filipino and white. Mm -hmm. Um, I was raised in like a fundamentalist Baptist background where I had to be really submissive. And it's just so creepy to like look and see that of how I've become like a prize rather than a person. And I was mm -hmm. shaped to become this prize. Wow. And it makes me really uncomfortable when you also look at the beauty pageants and the Miss Universes are all mestizas. They all embody this. Like, this is the ideal mm. Filipino woman. Like, not only is that super sexist, it's damaging to white women, it's damaging to Filipino women, and it's damaging to mixed women. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think having a historical perspective, like, really helps make it not feel like it's some sort of individual guilt that you need yeah. to there you know i i used to have like a lot of guilt feeling like i didn't belong in hong kong um because mm -hmm. i was never local or chinese enough even though like ethnically speaking i am fully chinese um reading this book um in for school um called flexible citizenship really helped me because it mm -hmm. was literally like an ethnography of people like me cool. and understanding like the social economic political processes that led to these families like migrating all over the world and then like having third culture kids as children really really opened my eyes to like the, the broader histories and like processes that led to people like me being born mm -hmm. so it it made me realize okay this is like much bigger history at work and it's not just my like it's not just about me <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that actually frees me a lot more to like do things that push back against certain like categories that restrict. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for that. I really do hope that you write something or like have a webinar about it. I think it's so powerful. What gives you joy? What gives me joy? Well, we were just talking about my dog before this started. So my dog Tchaikovsky is an 11 month old standard poodle and it gives me so much joy. I, just being outside in the sun and warm climates gives me joy. Good conversations, coffee, like good coffee, like freshly roasted beans that are then like immediately ground and then made perfectly. That makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you like, do you like making it yourself? Is it like the process that you enjoy? Or I do definitely. Um, I have like six or seven different coffee makers at home <laughs> and I just nice. like exploring all the different types of coffee that there are. I'm definitely a medium or light roast kind of gal though. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the coffee in Seattle? Like, I don't like it. <laughs> I was just about to say because it's so dark. Like, people it really is. like dark roasts. I know. I don't like it at all. I'm like, what is going on? I mean, I like a dark roast if it's in, a, in an espresso. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I, I can drink a, uh, a dark roast that way. But, like, a pour-over coffee dark roast is just way too oily. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. I think it's just like, I think it's like the Starbucks mentality that's just like affected everyone with this like mm. good dark roast and the strong bitter flavor. But I'm like, you can have the bitterness with, I, I think the dark roast like masks some of the more nuanced flavors that you get in like a lighter medium roast, like nice cherry or nutty flavors and aromas. Like, I don't know. It's just such a nice experience. Um, yeah. I love coffee, but this is like something I do like on the weekends. Like, mm -hmm. Monday through Friday is just like regular drip coffee because I just need the caffeine. Yeah, yeah. And then you get like treat time to make coffee for yourself. Yes, yes. It is definitely a joy. Um, awesome. And I love cooking. Mm. Um, I don't do it as much here. Um, when we lived in, uh, we moved from Richmond, Virginia uh, about a year and a half ago. And we had a, it was a small apartment, but the kitchen was like super open. So that gave me a lot of space to cook. But now in this house, it's like, was built in the sixties. Um, and the, uh, the shelves are super low. So I can't really chop without hitting my hand against the oh, shelves. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, it stresses me out so much. I'm like, this is used to be something that gave me so much joy, but now I'm just like, <laughs> Um, the kitchen setup set is so important. It is. It totally is. So, uh, it, and the other thing too is like, so when we were in Richmond, Virginia, like, I don't know if anyone's been there, but um, it, it, it's like, there's pretty much like white Richmond and then there's black Richmond and there's a really tiny Asian community. And so I made a lot of Asian food regularly. Like I make pho and make all sorts of Korean dishes or Thai dishes, like Indian dishes, Filipino dishes all the time. But now that I moved to Seattle, I'm like, um, these people make it so much better than me. Yeah. I don't ever have to cook ever again. <laughs> exactly. Like that, I feel similarly, yeah. like I uh -huh. try to make stuff at home and I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, honestly, like why, like, why? I, I'm never going to make it better than these people. So <laughs> I should just honor and respect them. Yeah. I just paying them to do what they do best. Exactly. Well, especially because some dishes just take so long. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, like a good pho broth takes you like, like a day to make. Yeah. And so I'm totally. like, I don't want to spend 24 hours waiting for 
one bowl of soup when I could just go down the store, uh, go down the street and <laughs> get something that's even better than what I could make at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what are you cooking nowadays? Um, gosh, so I, so my mom is Filipino and my dad is Canadian, but my grandparents are from Eastern Europe. And so I go back and forth between like the Eastern European dishes I grew up with and and Filipino dishes. So like I'll make adobo and I love making adobo because you turn adobo into adobo fried rice the next day. Mm. It's amazing. Love um, it. Yeah. And for my mom, for my, for my dad's side, I'll make um, uh, paprikash or um, borscht, which is like a beet soup. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I like making lots of that and just reusing it. Um, the next day and sometimes uh yeah sometimes i'll make like uh oh, what's it called i forget what it's called but it's like sauerkraut but made with red cabbage and it's got mm. like vinegar and apples in it and onions and i'll yeah. use that as my borscht base i'm all about like making food that you can turn into something else the next day yes yeah i feel like that's like um like home cooking hack 101 yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, especially the fried rice tip is really, really good. Yes. I love making anything, <laughs> fried rice out of anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's your, do you have a pro tip for making good fried rice? I feel like everybody has like a different take on it. Yeah. Well, I think every, obviously day old rice is like the good thing. Uh, I, I can't really think of anything. It's just like, so like I know that there's different types of fried rice. Like I know like Thai fried rice uses brown sugar. So sometimes I'll just like mix and match or like sometimes I'll do kimchi and I'll use a bit of gochujang and like soy sauce and vinegar mm -hmm. or sometimes mirin or even sake. It just like really depends on what kind of food I'm incorporating into my fried rice. Right. Yeah. That's already um, so much more advanced than what I do. <laughs> I think I just <laughs> try my best not to put too much oil. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Cause like, yes. I feel like there's, there's a certain level of oiliness that you need, but yes. It's so easy to like go overboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I use a wok and that like helps me like manage how much oil I put in. Um, yeah. I don't, I think it just there needs to be just a little bit before you add the rice. And if you are leaving more liquid, I think water is better than oil. Mm, yeah. That's a really good tip. Yeah. <laughs> I make fried rice a lot. <laughs> Good. Yes. I feel like, I feel like, um, so I, I do eventually plan on having children at some point oh, and yeah. I worry, like one of my main reasons for trying mm -hmm. to level up my fried rice skills right now mm -hmm. is so that my kids will grow up with good fried rice. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just hacking your knowledge for my children. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I, gosh, like I will say like my favorite, so these are two standard fried rice things that are even leftover related. One is like spam egg garlic fried rice. Mm. Such a good basic. But if you want to get fancy, you can do gochugaru peppers or gochujang and soy sauce and vinegar. I think like the soy sauce vinegar is key. In any fried dish. Um, and the other thing that we discovered, so we, I grew up in Japan, I don't know if you knew that, but like I lived there for 18 years and the, the tuna corn mayo combo is fucking delicious. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anyone says. I love it. Oh, um, I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you use the QP uh, mayo. Yeah. So I do that with, with rice and I 
uh, throw an egg and do that into like a fried rice too. And then sprinkle that with three kake on top and spring onions. And it is just like, oh, it just reminds me of my childhood. I don't know why. <laughs> I, those like nostalgia flavors are so important. Yeah, yeah. yeah like your go-to things. Like I think for me it's kanji. Mm. Although I can never make kanji the way that it actually like tastes back home in Hong Kong. But it's oh. just comforting. Like kanji yeah. and a bit of Chinese pickle mm. hits the spot. Yeah. Yeah, I've never made kanji. I've like, oh, never tried. I've always been so intimidated by it because it just like I don't know. It's it's um, I think it's very easy to make. It's difficult mm -hmm. to make well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, actually, this is a pro tip that um, Terry, another member of SPAC, um, taught me, was that you're supposed to. Um, what she does is she uh, gets uh, the rice, she cooks it, and then she freezes them into like ice cubes. Oh. And then, yeah, and then so apparently when you just pop those into boiling water, it just explodes the rice in a perfect way that makes it all super fluffy. That is amazing. I know. And she's, like, using her, like, engineering skills to, like, produce <laughs> all of this. I was so impressed. Um, and I, I haven't attempted it yet. Like, the idea of freezing rice into ice cubes is, like, freaking me out a little. Uh -huh. um, but it sounds totally legit and I trust her because she's a master chef um oh, okay. but yeah um All usually right. the, the thing that um I've seen on a lot of recipe sites is that you're supposed to coat the rice with oil first okay and let it soak for a bit before you start cooking it and then cooking it is just a matter of adding water and stirring huh yeah okay well I'm going to keep that tip in mind and try some kanji yeah it's just like it I don't know, there were just certain things like I grew up like these are things that you make at home but these are things like you'd go somewhere to mm -hmm. to eat like one of those things is yeah kanji and the other one is like dumplings I have never made dumplings at home mm. like and I've never made lumpia which is like well I made lumpia now but I did grow up making it um I see. because that was just like we go to family parties and I was like made there or like my mom would make it other people it was it was always like already made before I arrived so I never like I didn't grow up eating lumpia or any other kinds of dumplings because it's it's always been like a party food and my mom was like you know send the children away while we're <laughs> making food because I don't want to get distracted because I need this party to be perfect um so it's yeah like those are definitely things that I I grew up eating but never made because it was seen as something special and it was better if mm -hmm. someone else did right um, so there's still this part of me that feels like, oh, this is like taboo for me to try to make this. Which <laughs> is such that, a like, weird. You'll never be as good yes. as like your family. Yes. Yeah. But it also like feels weird to like make like lumpia just for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a communal dish. It definitely is. And same with like pancit. And that's something that's like for me has been struggle with like Filipino food. Because like, so I grew up in Japan. I spent a lot of time in the Philippines. And even though we live in Japan, there was lot um we were really connected to the Filipino, Filipino community there and so like our house always had like Filipino bible study and all of this stuff mm -hmm. so like I never ate Filipino food just with my family it was always like with the Filipino community so like it's kind of like bittersweet now to like make it um like I made adobo last week and I'm just like oh I love this but it made me sad because I just missed everyone and I feel like there's no it's like Filipino food is just like such a party celebratory uh you that it I don't know like I'll still make it but it makes me sad because I want to share it with more people 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I was thinking that after this whole quarantine lockdown situation is over, we should totally do like Olympia and dumpling yes. making party. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that would be super fun. I'm going to close off our phone call today with a question that we normally ask at the end of all of our podcasts, which is mm -hmm. what are you snacking on? And um, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like food. Um, it can be anything you like, especially right now, like what is getting you through this lockdown period? Mm. What is, what is nourishing you? Oh, so I just became a patron of the Liturgist podcast. Um, and that's just been amazing. I really like their meditations and some, they just did, I think a few weeks ago, um, uh, one of their podcasts was about body image and I've just never really thought about it. And now that I've listened to it, I'm just realizing how it's like everywhere. Um, and so that's what I've been snacking on that a lot. Just like thinking about uh, the obsession with food, our relationship to food. Um, I interviewed someone who started the intuitive eating movement. Mm -hmm. um, so, and what is that? If you don't mind explaining. I will it's been a while since I listened to it, so I'm going to do my best to um, reiterate it. It's this, well, she, she just talks about how, like, diets actually fail and how they're really terrible and perpetuate more harm than good. And intuitive eating is learning to trust your body and listen to your body and what your body's saying to you. Like, instead of saying, oh, I want this ice cream, like, what are the emotions mm. making you want this ice cream? So I've been, like, thinking of that about food of like, what am I craving? Why am I craving this? Like mm -hmm. I was really craving adobo like last week and I'm like us because I'm really missing my mom and I'm really sad. And for me, it's like, I don't have to worry about how much I'm eating. I'm just eating until I, like, I feel that part of me that is full. Um, so I've been snacking on that and just like, I ever, ever since I listened to that, podcast I'm just realizing just how much body shaming is like everywhere like it's on the like I just I think never even thought about I was just not conscious of it um like I just saw an ad for like a YouTube ads about like how to get rid of your belly fat I'm like wait why is this a YouTube ad that is so weird mm -hmm. um and just like stuff about Adele and all these things and I'm just like I would just never have thought about it or cared before, but now it's just like brought it to my attention, like, whoa. And it's not just, not just like about weight, but like your actual body. And which has always been like, that's something I've been exploring myself is like being multiracial of um, what I inherited from who and when, and not to be embarrassed about it, but to celebrate it. Um, so that's one thing I'm stacking on. And the other thing I'm stacking on is this, uh, I've read this like five times. It's Thich Nhat Hanh's Peace is Every Step. It's just a whole bunch of short meditations on how to achieve peace. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh was a, a very famous uh, Vietnamese anti-war Buddhist monk who was very prominent during the Vietnam War and, and then time afterwards and has started really amazing meditation communities. So he's got a lot of wisdom and he passed away a few years ago. But I always love coming back to this book and especially with quarantine, I've been anxious, just like anxiety just like uh, overwhelms mm -hmm. me. So I go outside 
I'll sit on the grass in my front lawn. I don't care if people are watching me and I'll just read one or two chapters and that just like, and do some of the meditations he writes about. And that just really helps me find my peace again. So that's my spiritual snack. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah I think um, we are like living in trauma right now. Mm-hmm. And I wonder like everybody's anxiety levels are high. And I think a lot of us, unless you've like really done the work of like really getting to know your body um, and how you respond to things, you don't know what your anxiety responses are. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you're taking care of yourself and like, you know, where you're at. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, but I don't always listen to my body. <laughs> I mean, it's a, journey. it's a journey, right? Like it's not, we're not like our bodies are growing as we are in our self-awareness. And so it's, it's, it's a relationship we have with ourselves that we constantly have. Well, thank you so much for thank chatting. Um, I feel like I like got an opportunity to get to know you a bit better, um, which is awesome. Cause I, I think I remember seeing you the first time you came to a SPAC meeting and I was like, oh wow, like she seems really cool. Um, like, because they're just like, you know, there's a lot of people we're having fun, but we never get to like sit down and talk, talk. So I'm really glad we have this opportunity. Thank yes. So and much. I'm looking forward for the Olympia dumpling party yes. when everything is over. We need to do that. We absolutely yes. need to. Like I'm keeping a list of the things that I'm looking forward to. <laughs> to have some hope at the end of the day. We want to say a big thank you to Kenji and Katya for joining us this episode and thank you for listening. We're looking forward to including more voices from the SPAC community in our podcast and we hope we'll be able to record in person soon. This podcast is generously hosted by Diverging Mag and our audio editor is Thomas Yang. Our music is provided by Chucky Kim and the podcast artwork is created by Kelly Kamari de Martel. For more premium snack content, you can follow us on Instagram at SPAC underscore snack. Feel free to slide into our DMs with snack recommendations, feedback, and stories of your own. As always, we love hearing from you. Until next time, stay hungry, stay thirsty, and support your local POC restaurants.